before we get into anything, on June 12th, 2023, legendary Spider-Man artist, and in many people's opinions, the best Spider-Man artist, John Romita Sr. passed away. Some, if not most, of Spidey's most iconic moments were drawn by the great John Romita, whose career in comic books spanned nearly six decades. He started as a ghost artist, drawing for a friend of his for $17 to $20 an issue. Then he worked for Atlas Comics. Then he worked for DC Comics. He worked for Marvel. He helped design some of Marvel's most iconic heroes and villains, and drew perhaps Marvel Comics' most famous story, The Night Gwen Stacy Died. A facsimile issue of The Night Gwen Stacy Died is now on sale, and Marvel will be releasing a facsimile of the issue that follows. Without Ramita's work, who's to say what the King of Swing from Forest Hills, Queens would have become? Not content on just drawing heroes, Ramita joined the Fund Disbursement Board of the Hero Initiative, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to helping work-for-hire comic book writers, inkers, colorists, and letterers who found themselves or find themselves in debt or struggling to pay bills because the life of a comics creator is rarely glitz and glamour. He received an Ink Pot Award in 1979. He was inducted into the Will Eisner Award Hall of Fame in 2002. He received the Hero Initiative Lifetime Achievement Award in 2006 alongside also legend George Perez. And he was inducted into the Inkwell Awards Joe Sinnoh Hall of Fame in 2020. He was a husband, a father, a friend, an artist whose love of comics gave us a son with a love of comics. A one John Romita Jr., current artist on The Amazing Spider-Man. To the now eternal John Romita Sr., I say thank you for the art. Thank you for the stories. Thank you for helping to make a small, bug-bitten hero most unlikely to become the world's favorite the world's favorite. You are legend, sir. Thank you again. All right, it's been damn near a month. So I shouldn't have to say it, but I gotta say it. There are spoilers from Go. I won't apologize. It's what we do here. Welcome back and welcome to season two of me and my friend Pete. Another Donuts and Dimes production. I'm your host, Miles Morales' most motor-mouthy mans, Gerald. I'm so excited to bring you another bonus episode covering BK's one and only Spider-Man and Marvel's best on-screen superhero bar none, a one, Miles Morales. We're covering the number one movie on planet Earth right now, Across the Spider-Verse. A movie that introduces us to the Spider-Verse we first bore witness to five years ago in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Or last episode if you were listening. We've got action, we've got adventure, we've got black solidarity, we've got a 21st century trolley problem, we've got spider people and everything everywhere all at once, and we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. Hang on to your day passes and let's swing. Me and the homie Miles. I'm alright, but he's the best one out. Hopping across the Spider-Verse. Not a clue on how to finish this verse. Look out for me and the homie Miles. The credits. Across the Spider-Verse was directed by Joaquin Dos Santos, Kent Powers, and Justin K. Thompson. Written by Phil Lord, Christopher Miller, and Dave Callahan. 
produced by Phil Lord, Christopher Miller, Amy Pascal, the great A.B. Arad, and Christina Steinberg. There are a couple of new additions to the cast, namely Jason Schwartzman playing barely villain of the week turned full-on big bad Jonathan Owen, a.k.a. The Spot, Andy Sandberg as Ben Riley, Issa Rae of Insecure fame playing Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman, Karan Sony as Papajir Pravaka, a.k.a. Spider-Man India. You may know Karan Sony from the Deadpool movies, Shea Wiggum as Spider-Gwen's father, George Stacy. Greta Lee as Lila, Spider-Man 2099's advanced artificial intelligence sidekick, Daniel Kaluuya as Spider-Punk. You may know him from Get Out fame if you're a black person in America because we've all seen it. You may know him from Wakanda. He was Okoye's love who she would kill for Wakanda in a heartbeat. And we've got Oscar Isaac of Moon Knight fame as Spider-Man 2099. So it is a star-studded cast and they brought the noise. Let's get into it. The prologue. The opening credits open much like Into the Spider-Verse with the logos for each entertainment company glitching out to what we now know are other universes' versions of their logos. And like ISV, that's Into the Spider-Verse, the story doesn't open to Miles Morales. Instead, we're on Earth 65 in the universe of Spider-Woman, Ghost Spider, or as she's been affectionately dubbed by Spider-Fans the world over, Spider-Gwen. For the record, Spider-Gwen first appeared in Edge of Spider-Verse Volume 1, Number 2, and was created by writer Jason Latour and artist Robbie Rodriguez, based, of course, on Gwen Stacy of the 616 universe created by Stan Lee and the GOAT Steve Ditko. Her hair has grown longer, she's dyed the edges pink, she looks a little older, but for the most part, she hasn't changed much appearance-wise. But she's suffering from some major league depression. She's the drummer for a band called the Mary Janes, but gets into an argument with them, and quits. She says she only had one friend. Her universe is Peter Parker, and they were tight. We see Gwen get bit, get her spider powers, take up the mantle of Spider-Woman and superheroine in earnest, but she being bitten means Pete never was. So he's still being bullied something fierce, and he's still genius level outcast. He creates a lizard serum and crashes their prom as a massive lizard before Spider-Gwen puts him down hard. He reverts back to Pete. The two have a moment where he lays dying before Captain George Stacy. Her father arrives on the scene just in time to spot Spider-Woman crouched over his daughter's best friend's dead body. Just like that, he became the biggest Spidey hunter in New York City. In the present, Gwen rides the subway home saying she didn't really know Peter, and despite him being her best friend, after she lost him, she never made another one. Until Miles. She gets home, tells her father she quit the band, and the two get into an argument over Spider-Woman. They stand on opposite ends of her room, a sad blue just shrouding the whole scene until George asks if she's too punk rock to give her old man a hug. Before he finishes his sentence, she's crossed the room and hugged him tight around the waist. As soon as she does, color floods into the heavy blue room down the walls through her and George. It's a stunning visual. They are already working. Unfortunately, they can't talk more. Stacy's radio goes off. A police operator tells him something's up at the Guggenheim. He's on his way. So is Spider-Gwen. And I love, I said it before, I'll say it again, I love the way Spider-Gwen web swings. She incorporates her grace and skill from ballet dancing into her repertoire as she races towards the scene. The scene? 1071 Fifth Avenue. You see a mile. Bow-shaped building. You can't miss it. Spider-Gwen, putting herself between the people in the danger, webs up all the cops on scene, including her father, and enters the building, where she goes one-on-one -on -one with a paper 2D Italian Renaissance-styled Lincoln O. Vulture. <laughs> 
only speaks Italian. To be fair, he was minding his own business, sipping a 2D macchiato at a cafe in Venice before he was sucked into the Spider-Verse and wound up here. Spider-Gwen's managing to hold her own, but things are getting hairy. No worries. Spider-Man 2099 bursts onto the scene with a dope personal rift through a portal activated by a fancy wristwatch he's wearing. Sidebar. Miguel O'Hara, aka Spider-Man 2099, first appeared in The Amazing Spider-Man number 365, one of my favorite Spidey comics ever, in August of 1992, and his own solo series of the same name in November of 1992. He was created by the writer Peter David and artist Rick Leonardi. Quick spotlight, Miguel is an Irish-Mexican-American geneticist working for Alchemex in the year 2099, trying to recreate the original Spidey's powers using human test subjects. He kills a person with the research, decides he's out, is forced into becoming a drug addict by Vice President of Alchemax's research and development wing, Tyler Stone, and is forced to stay in. Miguel says screw that, tries to splice his own genes, hoping to rid himself of his addiction. But a jealous co-worker rigs the machine he's using to pump 50% spider DNA into Miguel, and BAM! Spider-Man 2099 was born. He ain't even Strength, to get speed, bit. agility, no spider sense, but far advanced vision allowing him to see in pitch black darkness, talons on his hands and feet to stick to most surfaces, and a venom bite that temporarily paralyzes his foes. Yeah, Marvel went all the way dark on that one. Back to! So, 2099 is on the scene now and immediately chides Spider-Gwen for still having to clean up her mess at the Collider in Miles' universe. So he's saying that Gwen, Miles, and company are to blame for the Vulture being in Gwen's universe right now. In no time, he mounts the paper villain Vulture and rips one of the man's wings off. But this ain't stopping leaking on Vulture. He regenerates his wing from who knows where, but 2099 shouts, Icon Dios, he's got Hammer's face! So now we know where, because we get a caption box telling us Hammerspace is a pocket dimension that certain characters can use to pull items from nowhere. So think about anime cartoons, think about Looney Tunes cartoons, that's Hammerspace. 2099, realizing he's in over his head, he tells his advanced AI Lila to do the thing. The thing, calling in his number one lieutenant, the Issa Rae voice Jessica Drew, an African-American Spider-Woman in the classic red, black, and yellow Spider-Woman costume, and a motorcycle to boot. Spider-Gwen is awestruck before we see the woman is pregnant. Spider-Gwen, acknowledging the sheer badassery of the woman, asks if she'll adopt her. The two continue clearing the scene as 2099 takes the fight outside, above the Guggenheim, with the vulture as a police helicopter shouts at the two to cease and desist. The art here is amazing. There's a moment where like, Spider-Man 2099 opens his mouth and bares his fangs to bite into the vulture, but the light shines on him so he doesn't. Beautiful to look at. The action already on 10, it's turned up to 50 as the vulture disables the helicopter with paper bombs and blows the roof of the Guggenheim, sending the helicopter plummeting through the roof of the famed bow. All three spider people spring into action, but it's Spider-Gwen who steals the show. A drum beat kicks in her head and she's got action. She uses the spiral design of the Guggenheim, bouncing from one end of the spiral to the next, creating a massive web net to slow the falling copter before agility on best ever, swooping through the small opening of the copter and snatching the police officers from inside. 2099, watching in suppressed awe, says that that's exactly what he would do before all three spiders jump the villain. They subdue the vulture. Spidey 2099 opens a portal to take the villain away telling Spider-Woman the cannon is intact. Captain Stacy arrives on scene and holds Spider-Gwen up at gunpoint. Spidey-Gwen, 
unable to deal with the duality of the situation, reveals her secret identity to Stacy at last, who hesitates and then reads her her Miranda rights. He's gonna take her in, but no! A small spider-shaped device slides near his feet, tossed by 2099, trapping the man in an orange energy field. Spider-Woman, realizing Spidey-Gwen has nowhere else to go, tells 2099 they can't leave her here. 2099, tossing a wristwatch at Spider-Gwen, tells her to join the club. She puts the watch on her wrist, follows the two through the portal. Who we came to see. In the 1610 universe, home to Miles Morales' Spider-Man, we find the young hero one year in, telling us what he's been up to. He's been taking down baddies, endorsing baby powder, apologizing for endorsing baby powder. I made a mistake. Made to Florida, he grew a mustache, was teased for growing said mustache, and has come to his own as Brooklyn and New York City proper's one and only Spider-Man. Like most spider people, the job is getting in the way of his personal life. He's running late to a meeting about his future at Brooklyn Visions Academy when he stops at a bodega to get a beef patty where the villain The Spot is trying to steal a whole ATM, if you recall. We did a spotlight on The Spot way back in season one's bonus episode, Lawyered. So check it out there. I was clear on the fact that The Spot was a joke. But I take great pride in also saying the man, if he ever figured it out, would be extremely dangerous. Covered in spots, he has the ability to open portals that let him teleport himself and anything else he wishes anywhere he wants. But he has always been, like I said, pretty much a joke. Spider-Man and the Spot battle across Brooklyn, Spider-Man quipping that Spot's barely a villain of the week while texting his father the whole time before he manages to use the Spot's own portals against him, tangling the man up between buildings and Spot's and webbing. Spidey races to his dorm room, chastises Gonky for wearing his OG ones, and gets changed. He throws a slap hazard excuse to his mother, father, and guidance counselor waiting for him when he enters the room, and the guidance counselor gets right to it, going over Miles' grades. Rio, his mother, gives the kid a pass for getting an A- in English, but snaps, literally, when she finds out Miles got a B in Spanish. When she does, the Puerto Rican flag pops up above her fingers, and she scolds the kid in Spanish. Miles replies in Spanglish, frustrating her further. The guidance counselor says if Miles wants to get into Yale, they have to figure out who the kid is because nobody seems to know. Rio does not want Miles to go to Yale. She says that Jersey is too far. But Miles does. He wants to do work on interdimensional portals. He says there are people out there who can help him with the work and he has to go out into the world to chase his fortune. He sees a spot back in action outside of the office window, is saved by the bell, and rushes out followed by Jefferson, who gets a distress call about the spot. Rio makes to leave next, but stops when the guidance counselor tells her that Miles is lying to her, and she can tell Rio knows it. This is a great scene altogether, but there's a moment that I think is the highlight when the guidance counselor suggests Miles write about his struggles. Jefferson points out that they own a floor of a brownstone in Brooklyn. That ain't cheap. And he's being promoted to captain soon. So they're not exactly struggling. I think it's a subtle nod to how the world assumes that people of color are innately doing bad, the guidance counselor doesn't know Miles, but suggests the kid write about how hard his life has been. Before being bitten by the spider, though, he had a pretty normal New York kid's upbringing, and I'd argue it was a lot better than most. Either way, we also see that Jefferson's a modern man, securing his relationship to be sure, because according to his name tag, he's changed his last name to Morales, Rio's last name. Back to Miles is suited and booted once again in a rematch with the spot, this time with Jefferson on scene. The three bounce around BK through portals and water towers before winding up at the collider Fisk and Alchemax built in the previous movie. We find out Spidey and the Spot's origin stories are intertwined. Spot was a scientist at Alchemax named Jonathan Own, 
the scientist who Miles hit in the face with a bagel during the Switchy Switchy escape. But the connection goes deeper. The glitching Alchemex 42 spider? Spot was the scientist who pulled that spider from Universe 42 to the universe of 1610 using the collider. And Spider Miles? When he destroyed the collider, Spot was caught in the blast. He says being covered in spots ruined his life, that he made Spidey a hero, and Spidey made him that, before racing at Spidey and Jefferson. The two braced themselves, but remember way back when I said the spot is a joke? Ain't nothing change. Racing forward, he steps through one of his haphazardly placed portals, kicks himself in the groin, flips head over foot, and skids to a stop in front of Spidey and Jefferson, butt tooted in the air like he's a toddler before falling through his own face portal, screaming, I am your nemesis! Big fell, boy. Jefferson and Spider-Man exit the collider and have a heart-to-heart -heart about Miles, making the boy beneath the mask frustrated enough to suggest that Jefferson get off the kid's ass before the scene closes. Meanwhile, Spot's literally fallen into himself. Surrounded by Spots, he's entered his own dimension and begins to use the spots around him to explore others. He sticks his head through one of the spots, winding up in a 1962 comic-styled Earth. Then, Universe 13122, the Lego Spider-Man dimension, immediately causing the people and vehicles on the street to break into Lego parts in panic. But he doesn't realize that he's in front of the Daily Bugle, where Lego Peter Parker watches the whole scene from J. Jonah Jameson's office window before slinking past a tirading J. Jonah Jameson and into a bathroom. He enters a stall, raises a wristwatch to his face, and calls 2099, telling the man they have a problem. So we know Lego Spidey is a part of the Spider-People team. And he's a good one. Receiving the message, 2099 tells him, Thanks, Peter. You're one of the best. This guy is one of the best. He can't even bend his knees, and he's one of the best. Next, Spot pokes his head into Universe 688 and finds himself in a corner store, Eddie Brock frequents, and is surprised to find the shop owner, Mrs. Chin, isn't rattled at all by his appearance in her 4D universe. But this woman is used to seeing a man covered in black goo with a three feet long tongue. I never saw Venom, but I heard that he ate a guy in that store. Translation? A cartoon head won't scare her. Meanwhile, Jefferson and Rio are hosting a party on their rooftop beneath a mural in honor of Jefferson's brother Aaron, who, if you recall, was the villain known as the Prowler and killed by the Kingpin in Into the Spider-Verse. All of their friends and family are there, except Miles. Rio gives a speech. Then Jefferson, who thanks everyone for coming, thanks Rio for being awesome, and raises a glass to Miles, saying he does all the things he does for his kid. A kid who isn't there. And where's Miles? Suited and booted as Spider-Man in a bakery getting two cakes because the heartfelt message he has for his father doesn't fit on one. He can't web swing with both cakes, so we get vignettes of Spider-Man making his way home through public transportation, cabs, etc. The whole time having to detour constantly to fight crime. When he reaches the party, he of course gets into an argument with his parents who want to know what he's into. At one point, Rio says, Dame un break. Miles, petulant, asks if that's Spanglish. The argument culminates and Miles saying, whatever. And if you were raised in a black or brown family in New York City, you know there's one word you can't ever say in response to a dressing down from your parents. Rio shouts, whatever, whatever, before Jefferson grounds Miles for two months. Miles storms off saying he's not grounded, he's Spider-Man. He enters the apartment and slams the door of his room. He plops down onto his bed, throws his headphones on, puts his hands behind his head, and begins to zone out with his audio therapy. His room begins to glow, Kirby dots open above his head, and Miles opens his eyes to find Spider-Gwen, 
mask off, asking if he's got a minute. She enters the room and the two have a great conversation. Gwen says Miles looks taller. Miles says her hair looks pinker. The whole time, Miles trying to clean up while she's not looking, kicking junk and clothes under his bed, into his closet, throwing some out of the front of his room, etc. While he's doing this, Gwen picks up his sketchbook and finds she's become amused to his art. Just page after page after page of pictures of her. She says she missed him too, before sitting on the windowsill, asking if Miles wants to get out of here. Miles says he's grounded. Gwen falls backward through the window, and when Miles follows, she's standing on the sheer wall of the brownstone, mask on, arms folded, and it's to know that she's traded her signature ballet shoes in for some light blue Chuck Taylors. She asks if Spider-Man's grounded. Miles stutters a bit, smirks, gets suited and booted. The two webs swing through the city, Metro booming in the background, Spider-Gwen telling Spidey all about the elite society of Spider-People, Spider-Woman, 2099, etc. Before Spidey, of course, wants to get down with the team. He says he's upped his whole game, and they race through the city. We get a hilarious scene, a hilarious scene of the two web swinging past a subway car where a kid is inside just licking the glass. And we find out Gwen's been a part of this elite society for a few months. Miles says a few months is kind of a long time before Gwen mentions a guy named Hobie. Miles tries to play it cool, but the kid's jealous because he starts peppering her with questions about Hobie immediately. Back at home, Rio knocks on Miles' door, telling him that Jefferson is ready to listen to reason. When the two find out he's gone, Jefferson throws another muff onto the kid's punishment. Miles is gonna be grounded till he graduates high school. Meanwhile, Spidey's lost track of Spider-Gwen, who hasn't only come to see Miles. She's here for the spot, who has set up a makeshift laboratory on the top floor of a dilapidated building. His goal? More power! Gwen leaves an advanced spider tracer on the scene and reconnects with Spidey, who takes it to his thinking spot. Namely, the Williamsburg Bank Building. The two have a heart-to-heart, -heart mask off, sitting upside down beneath an overhang. There's a great moment here of Gwen putting her hair into a ponytail before she takes her seat upside down. So even when the world's upside down, she tries to be in control. That's how I read it. I thought it was great. They talk about their parents, Gwen telling Miles to take her word for it, telling his parents about his secret identity is a bad idea. And the two sit side by side, upside down beneath the rooftop. Gwen saying Miles is the only friend she's made since Peter died. And Miles says, except Toby. Gwen, brushing off his jealousy, says that's different, that she and Miles, and Miles finishes the sentence, saying they're the same in the important ways. Gwen says in every other universe, Gwen Stacy falls for Spider-Man. Miles inches his hand towards hers. Gwen notices, says in every other universe, it doesn't end well. Miles pulls his hand away. Gwen notices that too. Smiles at his ability to read the room. Miles asks if there's the first time for everything. Gwen gives a small laugh, then leans against Miles. The final shot of the scene, the city is upside down, the two are small. Sitting beneath the building, stage left. Gorgeous moment. The next time we see them, Miles and Gwen are on his rooftop, right side up, eating plopinos beneath a water tower as Rio and Jefferson look on. Rio is pissed. She says Gwen looks old enough to vote and best the girl doesn't even speak Spanish. While Miles, examining Gwen's wristwatch, finds out that it keeps Gwen from glitching out. He asks what it's gonna take for Miguel to notice him, rattling off his list of powers before Gwen tries to let him down easy. She says it's a small elite strike force that if it were up to her, but Miles gets it, he's not wanted. He presses a button on the watch, a small screen pops up, and Gwen snaps, shouting at Miles, afraid that he will see that she's keeping tabs on the spot, I'm sure. She apologizes, Rio comes up playing overprotective mom. Gwen, annoying her immediately by calling her by her first name, Rio, in her petty bag now, returns Gwen's sweater to her, 
which he found in Miles' room. Jeff comes up next, and Gwen's batting 0 for 2, calling Jeff by his first name. They hate being called by their first names, which is making me really self-conscious now because I only call my partner's parents by their first names. I wonder if it bothers I mean, I could always ask. I'll just ask. Back to They have an awkward conversation before Gwen's watch goes off, and she says she's got to run. She heads to the fire escape and gets ghosts. Jefferson leaves from beneath the water tower, and we get an amazing heart-to-heart -heart between Rio and Miles. Miles wants to tell Rio he's Spider-Man doesn't. Rio knows Miles wants to follow Gwanda and tells him to go. Before he goes, she tells him that she and Jeff did their best to raise Miles in a way that showed him he belonged anywhere he wants to be. That she knows he has to go out into the world, but she's afraid that the world won't look out for him or root for him like they do. She makes him promise her that they, the outside world, won't ever make him feel like he doesn't belong. I want to applaud the creators of this movie for this scene in particular. This promise may seem small, but speaking from my own experience as a black person who grew up in New York, it took me a much longer time to adopt the notion that I belong anywhere I've worked to be despite where I'm from and I still have issues with it. There are a lot of spaces outside of the South Bronx where the majority of people don't look like me and gearing up to be in those spaces still gives me great anxiety. Outside of my own experience, as a person who prides himself on the study of sociology, when we look at the positions of black and brown people in this country, disparities in everything from education to incarceration make it plain that we aren't truly welcome in a country a lot of our elders have helped create, whether by choice or by force. Rio, in this moment, proves she knows this, and more importantly, proves that she doesn't want Miles to be discouraged or crestfallen when he inevitably has to confront this. A superb moment. Back to Miles gets suited and booted now and follows Gwen to the spot's upper floor apartment. She heads inside. Miles, invisible behind her, and tells her wristwatch to show her what happened. What happened? The spot, big brain at work, created a mini collider that would give him his powers back, and it worked. His powers return. He says he's going to make Spider-Man pay before being sucked into the spot he created, punching holes in the floor, the walls, etc., around him, and vanishing. Spider-Woman pops up on Gwen's wristwatch, asking where's the villain she's supposed to be catching. Gwen makes a lame excuse, calling the spot a villain of the week, but Spider-Woman doesn't believe her. She tells Lila to find the spot, and Lila tries, but realizes the spot's hopping between universes. Spider-Woman finds out Spidey Gwen went to see Miles, chastises her, and says Miles can't be a part of this. Before Lila drops, more bad news. The spot is making his own portals, and he could be what they call a cannon killer. And every universe he's visiting has an Alchemex Corporation in it. His goal? More power! Spidey Gwen convinces Spider-Woman not to tell 2099 that she has this handle. They find out the spots landed in Earth 50101, a place called Mumbatan. Spider-Woman gives Spidey-Gwen an hour to catch the spot. She tells Lila to alert the local spider and leaves. Gwen stares past the upside-down invisible Miles through the giant hole in the wall towards Brooklyn, says goodbye, Miles, and follows. Miles heads to the giant hole himself, stares out at the city with a defiant gleam in his eyes, throws his mask on, and follows her through the portal. Earth. 50101. He rockets past different universes and into Earth 50101, Moonbatten, a stylized New York City that's built up even higher than our own NYC because in this city we have the population of Mumbai. For context, according to macrotrends.net, Manhattan is home to 1.6 million people. NYC proper, about 8.5 million people. Mumbai is home to approximately 21.3 million people. The artists have done an amazing job creating this massive city. Back to Spidey lands on Earth 50101, glitching the whole time where he catches up with Gwen. 
who unsurprisingly is pissed he's followed her as she tracks a spot who's trying to find Alchemex. And Spot's already up to his game. When Spider-Gwen tries to attack him, she's distracted by Spidey Miles and gets a portal kick to her face. Miles saves her but glitches out and she plummets towards Earth. Miles goes into a dive to save her but gets tangled up in crosswires and now he thinks that she's going to die, falling for a Spider-Man. Before she hits the ground though, she and Miles are webbed out of danger and we meet the Spidey of this world. He's got on the classic Spidey colors, big buggy eyes but with Indian influences on the costume. Very Bollywood, if I have to say. Shout out to Amita Bachchan. Shout out to Shah Rukh Khan, the greatest actor to ever live. This Spidey's mask stops just beneath his what can only be described as luscious hair. He's wearing gold socks, a sash in front of his groin, pointy tip shoes, and bangles on each wrist, which he not only wears, but uses Chinese yo-yo style with his webbing to fight with. This is Spidey India, and when he finds out that Miles came and wasn't invited, he says Spidey Miles must be in love with Gwen. He's very good at reading people before we get his backstory and him constantly calling Miles the new guy to Miles' desire, of course. Miles has been thwipping and quipping for a year. Spidey India's backstory. He says he's Pavitar Prabhakar, Spider-Man for the last six months. And he, being he Spidey is so easy. Yeah. He wakes up, skips the workout because he's naturally buff and doesn't want to get too big. Does nothing except coconut oil to his hair. Heads to school, doesn't have to try, but does. Fights bad guys, feeds stray dogs, has chai with his Maya auntie, takes a moment to chide Miles for calling chai chai tea, hangs out with his girlfriend Gayatri, avoids being caught with Gayatri by her father, Private Inspector Singh, the equivalent of Captain Stacy in this universe, then hilariously gives us a quick tour. Traffic here, and here, and here, here too. Then points towards a dome building saying this is where the British stole all of our stuff. Sidebar. Spidey India was created by Jeevan J. Kang, Suresh Sitharaman, and Sharad Devarajan, and first appeared in Spider-Man India number one in 2004. The character is almost 20 years old. Back to the spot attack saying he's leveled up his whole game and came here on a journey of self-enlightenment. Setting up a great line from Spidey India who says that's super cliche and not to eat, pray, love him, bro. Spot knocks the heroes aside and continues on his journey to Alchemex. The three spiders give chase. India asking his partners how they can concentrate with all this romantic will-they-won't-they they tension. Spot reaches Alchemex and immediately starts clearing a path towards the Collider. To his credit, he doesn't kill anybody. He starts dropping portals, you leave, you leave, you leave. Every time he says something, he just makes a portal and the people get sucked into the portal and pop out on the other side of the room safe and sound. So he's not trying to kill people. I think that's important at this part of the story at least. India asks if Miles knows about Hobie. Miles, of course losing focus, asks what he should know. But before they get an answer, the spot locks them out of the room with the boop of a button that throws up a force field barring their entrance. All three spiders realize what this means and we get a shot of an exact duplicate of the collider from Into the Spider-Verse. They start ramming into the force field, trying to break through as the spot says this is going to make him much more than a villain of the week. Miles touches the force field and tells the other two that he's been working on something new, pressing all his fingertips against the shield. He says he's going to absorb the energy and shoot it back. As his body absorbs the energy, the other two spiders pelt him with questions before we get an electric guitar strum and see combat boots racing towards the trio, followed by a shot of a spidey with spikes protruding out of the top of his mask in the shape of a mohawk, a leather jacket, a guitar pick, and an electric guitar. Spider-Punk, chaotic good in all his glory, is in the building. He leaps over the spider's heads through the force field, strumming his axe the whole time and lands between the spot and the spiders. India shouts, Hobie, my guy! The two are close friends. They play fight immediately before India thanks Punk for breaking the shield and springs forward towards the danger. Miles says he loosened the shield. Spidey Punk, 
Leaning against the control panel drops knowledge. Better advice, yeah? Use the poem, not just your fingers. And makes fun of the red running down Miles Costum, asking if the kid is bleeding from his armpits, before he, Miles, and Gwen join the fray. Gwen introducing the two. Miles is petty. He says he's never heard of Punk because Gwen never mentions him. We get Spider-Punk's backstory. He says his name's Obi Brown, yeah? Fun fact, this is also the name of the Prowler in the main 616 Comics universe. He was bitten by, you'd like to know. And for the last three years, he's been the one and only, but stops asking if we think he's really going to show us his secret identity and telling us to come off it. He says when he's not playing shows, antagonizing fascists, staging armed political actions slash performing art pieces, that's protests in the streets to be sure, or having a fight at the pub with the mandem. He says he's not a role model, but was briefly a runway model. He hates the AM, hates the PM, hates labels, won't call himself a hero because calling yourself a hero makes you a self-mythologizing narcissistic autocrat. He is Spider-Punk though. Spider-Punk was created by quite possibly my favorite Spidey writer of all time, Dan Slott and Olivier Copiel, and first appeared in The Amazing Spider-Man Volume 3 Number 10 with a cover date of January 2015 and a release date of November 19th, 2014. Miles is like, I thought you hated labels, but drops that train of thought when Punk tells Gwen she left her jumper at his place. A jumper's a sweater. Miles is like, how many sweaters do you have? Gwen says it's not hers, but Punk adds he left a toothbrush too. He asks Gwen if the chuck she's wearing are his as well before swinging his guitar just in time for Gwen to bounce off it towards the spot. <laughs> These two clearly know each other well. Spot fights off the group easily. Now, Spot and Miles stand face to face, the Spot saying the two will live up to their potential before floating towards the activated collider. The four spiders spin web lines to each other, each gripping an end as Miles webs the back of the Spot, shouting that he doesn't think the man is a joke, that he was just kidding, but it's too little, too late. With a finger cutting motion from the villain, a Spot appears in front of Miles' web line, snapping it and freeing the Spot to enter the collider. He and Miles share a freaky mind meld moment as the machine pours its energy into the Spot and we get a glimpse of Miles' Brooklyn, the spot, Jefferson looking up in shock from a New York street, and then an explosion. Miles asks what that was, and now the spot, covered in black, says it was their future, that he's gonna take everything from the young hero. With a, see you back home, he vanishes. Miles, dazed by the explosion, is pulled to his feet by Spider-Gwen. The four spiders race to the tip of the collider room, just in time to find the building, torn in half by the spot's entrance hole, and subsequent explosion is falling towards Moonbotten. All four stare down before Miles takes charge. He tells Gwen and Punk that he and India will clear a path while those two find a way to stop the building. And with only a, I'll do it, but not because you told me to, from Punk, the four leap over the edge of the building fearlessly, once again ready to put themselves between the people and the danger. Gwen and Punk manage to hold the falling building long enough for Miles and India to grab a couple people. India is literally lugging a small car with one hand. But when Punk and Gwen's webbing snap, Miles kicks it into high gear. He races through a spire, grabbing people and just flinging them out of an archway towards the street below. A second before Alchemax crashes into it, causing Miles to spin around and punch a chunk of wall to pieces. India shoots out a bangle, wraps the five people up, drops them safely on a nearby rooftop, and he and Miles rejoin Gwen and Punk in freefall. Miles in the lead. When I say they were working, they were working. Realizing they can't stop the building, they race in front of it towards an Indian adaptation of the Brooklyn Bridge. And with the speed and agility of a spider times four, begin clearing it of people. But the danger is only elevating as Alchemax descends. Spidey India spots Gayatri in the back of a bus, a bus falling through a hole in the bridge created by the falling debris and shouting no, snags it with a web line. 
Gwen nearby is warned by Lila that a cannon event is coming. The camera cuts back to Spidey India, still gripping the bus as rubble falls around the little girl from above. He can't reach her, but Private Inspector Singh has. He's on scene and grabs the girl up as India grunts that he can do both, wrapping the webbing attached to the falling bus around some exposed rebar. But the debris is falling too fast. He won't be able to get there in time. He's about to experience his first major tragedy as Spidey the superhero. But no, no, no. Luckily for them, Miles has just dropped the kid off with Gwen. His spider sense tingles and he takes in the scene, beginning to leap away. But Spider-Gwen's grabbed his arm. She doesn't want him to go. She says it's too dangerous. Miles is like, people, danger, it's what we do. Don't worry, I'm going to thread the needle and ring the bell. I got this, I promise, before pulling his wrist from Gwen's hand and leaping down towards the danger. Miles hits the ground running as the world crashes around him. He rolls, scoops up P.I. Singh, the little girl, pops up from Singh on his shoulders and the girl under his arm and races forward as smoke and debris flood the screen. Spider-Punk goes to help India with the bus as Gwen races to the last spot Miles was in before he was swallowed up by smoke and debris. Shouting no repeatedly, she pulls debris and dust and garbage out of the way and finds Miles, Singh, and the little girl alive. Gwen shouts, you're alive! Miles says he promised. In the aftermath, Gwen's watch shows a warning that reads cannon disrupted, so she isn't feeling too joyful. Everyone else is though, standing between his love and her father, Spider-Man India puts a hand to his heart and nods at Miles and thinks. Miles nods back before Spider-Punk comes up shouting, MEN LIKE MILES MEN YEAH! Clapping the hero on both shoulders. I love this scene because when Punk hits Miles, his costume, usually dull colors, become the vibrant red and blue of the Spider-Man, making me think in this moment, his always cynicism aside, He's proud to be called a spider, and that's because of Miles' quick thinking and willingness to put himself between the people and the danger. The four heroes get a standing ovation and fireworks from the people of Moonbatten as Miles asks Gwen what she thinks. She says what she always thinks, that he's amazing. He says they make a good team. But the feel-good moment is cut short when the four see a glitch in the universe and stare down at a massive black dimension sucking hole just growing in Kirby Dots. Indy asks, what's that? Punk says it's a metaphor for capitalism. Gwen says it's a lot worse than that. Before Spider-Woman appears on scene in a giant mechanical spider and spider people start flooding out of it. She orders them to contain the quantum hole. The newly arrived spiders get to work as Miles tries to introduce himself to Spider-Woman, but she knows who he is. She tells them Miguel wants to see them all back at HQ. Punk says he doesn't follow orders, and neither does Miles. But the kid is psyched. He's finally going to the show. <laughs> this whole scene is just wow. From Spider-Man India's introduction to the moment a comic book stack falls signaling the next scene, I was geeking something hard. Outside of Pete, Miles, Ben Riley, Gwen, I, I never really concerned myself with the other spiders, thinking if you've seen one, you've seen them all. Even when I was reading the comic story this is very loosely based off, I still was more interested in their stories than I was with other iterations. I realized something in that theater that I was missing out on though. Anyone can wear the mask, remember? And from India to a punk rocker sometimes runway mo, every Spidey's got it where it counts so far. I love the art design of Spider-Punk, where everyone else is in sync with the world's and animation style. He is animated in a kind of patchwork design of colors that looks like magazine collage meets Ramon's album cover. He's my favorite character in this movie by far and is more Spidey than most of the Spideys we're about to see going forward. And some we already know. Back to. After that amazing scene, a new comic is thrown onto the stack. 
a comic that shows Spidey 2099, Mask Off, staring over his shoulder at Spidey Miles, Mask Off. The Spider Society. Miles, Hobie, Gwen, and Jessica Drew rocket through a portal, landing on a lift. Hobie pulls his mask from his face, revealing a black late teenager with Basquiat-style dreadlocks and piercings on his face. Miles asks, how is the guy even cooler under the mask? Hobie says he's this cool the whole time. Miles steps forward to take in the view of what he's seeing. The world is upside down as they descend, throwing the symbolism we've come to expect from this franchise in sharp relief and on its head before we realize the quartet are standing beneath the platform they're on. They're not on top of it. They're under it as they ascend. The lift stops, the doors open, and we see this ain't a small operation at all. There are about 50 Spideys just mulling around before the group get off the elevators. They're greeted by Malala Windsor, Spider UK of Earth 835. A Muslim spider is in the building! She asks Jessica if they've spotted the spot. Jessica says she's funny. Does anybody else got jokes? But you gotta know, this is a building full of spider people. Everybody starts quipping. You saying quip? Or we quip. on a spot check. He could be anywhere in the H-O-L-E world. See, spot run. I literally saw like eight more pop-ups, but couldn't write them down fast enough. Either way, just leading the way, Miles, Gwen, and Hobie following, heads further into the spider tower. Miles says this is unbelievable. Gwen says this is just the lobby and welcomes Miles to the spider society. The camera pans out and Gwen's life turns out to be epic in scope because there's an awesome amount of spiders here. Spiders in cop uniforms wearing the Spider-Man mask alone. Gray spiders, jack spiders, short spiders, tall spiders, we small spiders. We get it, we get they're it. Whipping. They're, they're walking the along sheer walls. The whole building, it seems, is designed with each wall and platform interconnecting like spider webs. Punk says it's a bit much. Miles asks what happened to the small elite strike team. Gwen says a lot of them are part-time. As Miles stares around in wonder, Punk asks how much Gwen's told Miles about what they're doing before Miles glitches out. Punk says maybe she didn't tell him enough. Jessica tosses Miles a blue and red rubber band, saying it's a day pass that stops him from glitching. And if you've got a favorite spider, we probably see them now. A glimpse of the amazing Bagman, Peter Parked Carr, a literal dune buggy from Earth 53931, the hyper-emo Ben Riley, a.k.a. Scarlet Spider of Earth 94, bracing against the wall, telling Jessica that he can't talk because he's thinking about his past, before shouting, Ah! That was a particularly harrowing memory. We've got Webslinger, a cowboy Spidey, mask, mouth asking why the horse wears a mask, he says to protect the thing's identity. Duh! The group make their way next to a holding area where we see a ton of villains the spiders have captured in the same orange prison 2099 used on Gwen's father. Lila says these are anomalies, villains from different universes who were caught by the Spider Society. There are Doc Ox, Rhinos, a literal rhino, video game bad guys, a villain named Helvetica, covered in tattoos of just different fonts, and the inspiration from Miles Morales himself, a one Donald Glover, aka Childish Gambino, aka Hobie Brown from the MCU Spider-Man's past, in a full-on prowler suit in 4D. It's really him. He finally made it. Miles stares at him, finding out he's, well, an alternate dimension uncle before Gambino Prowler tells him it's rude to stare. Punk says he caught that Prowler himself. Gambino Prowler says he tripped. We find out Punk and Grim were on that mission together. And channeling Stan Lee, we find out from Punk that it was a couple dozen others. That's 24 missions at least they've been on together. Miles throws up his hands like I can't even deal with this anymore before bumping into Margot Kess a teenage black girl with two afro puffs in her hair with a purple hue. She's Spider-Bite, the spider of Earth-22191. Their spider senses go off with a profound buzzing. 
more intense than what we usually see. It's not even yellow, it's a light blue. Miles fails at her with an awkward smile, saying he's Spider-Man. She's like, cool, we all are. Gwen says they should keep moving, but Miles wants to talk to Margo. Spider-Bite isn't really here. She says she's an avatar. Her body is back in her parents' dimension, and we get a glimpse of her in a gamer chair, VR headset on, eating Fritos. She says here is better. Miles agrees. Before seeing a machine behind her, the spiders have taken to calling the go-home machine that sends the villains, or anyone really trapped in the orange cocoons, back to their own universes. Punk says it's super humane and not creepy at all sarcastically as a rhino from who knows where gets sent back glitching the whole time to who knows where. Gwen says they should go but Miles is still giving Margo his attention. He tells her see you around, a hit of flirtation in his voice, before Gwen suddenly shows she's jealous, hitting Miles with webbing in his back and pulling him away from Margo who wishes the kid good luck. The scene shifts and we find a 12099 giving us his backstory. But we've covered that last issue, so we'll skip it. Still addicted to the rapture drug, we watch him inject himself as he monologues about being the only one who does what needs to be done and he sacrificed too much to stop. The spiders enter his lab and Punk immediately wrenches a small electronic part from the wall, pocketing it before having a serious one-on-one -on -one with Miles. He tells the kid who's clearly hostile towards him not to let all of this distract him from the truth. When Miles asks what the truth is, Punk says he ain't got a Scooby-Doo. Translation, he doesn't have a clue. Still pulling electronic devices from the walls and panels surrounding them, he says maybe that's what they want. He asks Miles why he wants to be a part of this. Miles says to get a watch. Punk tells him he can make his own watch before saying Miles got a nice setup. Parents who care about him. Miles says they got into an argument because Jeff and Rio only want what's best for him. Punk calls it a shame ironically. When Miles asks why, Punk says Miles isn't ready for everybody else. So we're starting to get the sense that Punk really does like Miles and is trying to give him some game, but Miles wants in and he doesn't like Punk because of his relationship with Gwen, so he's barely listening. Punk says the kid doesn't need all this and points out something I truly believe about Spidey. He says the whole point of being Spider-Man is his independence. Until very recently, really early 2000s, Spidey wasn't a part of any super teams for any extended periods of time. Sure, he was in every major crossover, but he's the face of the company, so he had to be. Outside of that, he worked alone and handled things alone. I'm a firm believer in one person focusing on doing good in their community can truly help their community. And a lot of that comes from the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. He saved the world multiple times, over and over. A lot of these times by himself, but it's nothing in comparison to the good he's done in the area he lives in. Spidey's not constantly going off to the moon. He's not constantly in other dimensions, right? You will see Spidey on the block if you're from the block. He's outside. So does he work well with the team? Absolutely. But it bothers me a lot that whenever he's kicking around with the Avengers or the Defenders or the X-Men, they treat him like an annoyance and a bother for clearly being someone who realizes the ludicrousness of the lives they're in. We wear spandex. We get our asses beat. We fight guys with eight robot arms. Dudes with forged PhDs. Dudes from freaking Saturn who worship death and can end the universe with a snap of their fingers. If you can't find the comedy in this chaos, in the lives we're living, just high stakes to high stakes to high stakes, that's dangerous. The perfect example, Spidey 2099. He comes from a universe that's just dark and depressing and only gets more dark and depressing as it goes on and he rarely tells jokes. But then his origin ain't quite the same as most other Spideys, remember? Spidey is usually a person from a small corner of a big city with one parent who's trying to make it. If they don't laugh to keep from crying, they'd probably go insane. So their quips kind of make them an outcast even amongst their peers and that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Spider-Punk seems to understand this 
He's from a universe where he constantly has to fight against white supremacists who are a lockstep majority, and he's managed to keep a sarcastic and dry sense of humor while also knowing firsthand that sometimes the majority isn't the right side to be on. And sometimes even the team you're on can be too self-serious. And when that team is made up of spider people, the quintessential comic book jokester bar none, you as a spider should question it. At least that's what I'm thinking. Back to Miles listening to Punk prattle on, asked why the anarchist is here. Punk says he's just looking out for his drummer, ripping another electronic device from the wall and putting it in his pocket. Miles tells him to stop doing that, says he wants to be in a band and can only do that if he has a watch. Gwen convinces him to drop it, but not before Punk has the last word. Namely, don't get into this until you know exactly what you're fighting. The three enter a chamber and Miguel descends to meet them on the slowest platform ever, just proving that he's so, so serious. Dude, you are a Spider-Man. Leap from the platform. What's the point of agility on best ever if you're doing it like this? Sheesh. Gwen makes introductions and Miles shouts, Quitao, tío. Translation? How's it going, Unc? And tells the man he brought him an empanada. Miguel snacks it with a futuristic glowing red web line and throws it into a garbage can replying, King Maravilla. Translation? How wonderful. How do you make that sound like a threat? Miles is like, okay, I'm really excited to be working with you. I got some ideas on how to beat the spot. Before Miguel chucks the garbage can at him saying that he'll worry about the spot. Punk takes the empanada. Gwen's like, Miguel, right. it wasn't his fault. He didn't know any better. Miguel snaps. He says Gwen did. Miles is like, um, what is going on? Before someone from off panel shouts for Miguel to go easy on the kid because he had a terrible teacher. A moment before someone arrives on scene, mask off, costume on, pink bathrobe, baby carrier strapped to his chest, walking on the ceiling. Subtle symbolism, because the world is upside down in here, remember? So the guy's walking right side up, upside down. The guy? BDB is in the building. Punk says, oh boy, humbling reality, Spider-Man has arrived. And I think that's a great name for this Peach universe. Because if you recall, that guy's life was a crash course on Parker Luck turned up to a thousand. Either way, we see Punk and PDB ain't so different as Petey lifts Miles' arm and asks if the kid's bleeding from the armpits. It's a great subtle way to show that Punk, a standout and unique spider hero to be sure, may be one of the closest to the spirit of who Spidey is at his core. Back to Miles notices the baby carrier on the man's chest. He asks what it is. A moment before we see a curly red-haired toddler web swing upside down into the room. Ladies and gentlemen, Mayday Parker is in the building. And she spidered out. She web swings away immediately, landing on one of Miguel's devices and crawls to the edge as Punk watches saying with much respect that the kid's an anarchist. Pete grabs her, she escapes again, and begins crawling all over Miguel. Pete shows Miles and Gwen photos of Mayday and tries to show the statue like Miguel as well who says he's trying to have a serious adult conversation as Mayday crawls all over him. BDB's like, relax, Spider-Man is supposed to be funny. But every comedian needs a straight man, so we get 2099, I guess. Miguel starts talking about the fate of the universe. PDB says his brain's dying and grabs Mayday to change her. Spider-Punk watching says, taking a dump on the establishment, I salute you. He loves this little girl. Miguel continues. He tells Miles that he disrupted a canon event. So we've heard this mentioned a couple times already, but we get context here. A canon event is something that happens in a majority of the spider people's lives that put them on and keep them on the path to being Spider-Man. Important events that their histories all share. Surrounded by thousands of holographic spider webs and threads now, Miguel says these canon events create a web of destiny. Some of these canon events, they're bitten by a spider, someone, usually an uncle dies, and we see a long line of spiders 
on their knees holding their uncle's hands, ending in Miles holding Uncle Aaron as the man tells him to just keep going. Next, Miguel shows Miles an event called ASM 90. That's two seasons away here on MNMFP. But this canon event has a police captain killed by falling rubble, saving a child as he does as Spidey fights an arch nemesis. Miles glances at Gwen before staring down the line at countless spider people kneeling beside a dying police captain. Ending with Andrew Garfield's Amazing Spider-Man in 4D. A great nod to some of the best acting any spiders ever put forth on screen. PDB, unable to look at the moment, turns away. Miles asks if that happened to him. PDB doesn't answer, but Jessica Drew does. She says it happened to her. When Miles glances at Spider-Punk, he says, yeah, well, of it. So it happened to him too. Miguel continues. He says that's how the story's supposed to go. That canon events bind their lives together, and without that binding, the connections can be broken. He says Inspector Singh's death was a canon event, and Miles stopped it. That's why Gwen tried to stop him. Miles stares at her, chinks beginning to form in his perception of her. He says he thought she was trying to save him. She says she was trying to do both. But you really can't be trying to do both in that moment. If you stop him, canon event happened. Not a good line. Nice try, Gwen. Miguel says Miles wasn't supposed to be there. Because he was, Pavitra's dimension is coming undone, and if they're lucky, they can stop it. He says that they haven't always been lucky. Miles is like, that wasn't me, that was the spot. When he asks how Miguel knows all this, Miguel reveals that he broke the cannon before. He took the place of a Miguel O'Hara who was murdered in a universe similar to his own and raised the man's daughter like she was his own, and the cannon came undone. The universe was destroyed. He asks Petey if that's right. Petey says, yeah because Petey was there with him trying to save that universe. Miguel says, you break enough cannon, you save enough captains, and all of it comes undone. Miles has a realization. His dad is about to be captain. Gwen closes her eyes. Spider-Punk glances around the room scowling. Petey puts his head down. We get an almost imperceptible twitch from Miguel's left eyebrow before Miles' spidey sense goes crazy and he gets the same vision he had with the spot in Alchemax. He realizes his father's going to die and the spot does it. He asks Gwen, Miguel says in two days. Miles demands to be sent home, but Miguel won't let him. Miles is in sheer disbelief. He looks to Gwen, reminding her that her dad is a captain, but she doesn't budge. He turns to PDB, asking if the man knew Uncle Ben was going to die, would it be okay if PD let him? And PD rationalizes, saying if not for Uncle Ben, most of the spiders wouldn't be there. And he's saying this in front of Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, kneeling beside his Uncle Ben. So we've now got every single Spider-Man from theatrical and TV release ever, either on screen at some point or mentioned. So they are truly all connected. Miles' frustration is growing. He asks if nobody else thinks it's messed up and crazy sounding that they're making their choices based off what an algorithm tells them, leaving Lila feeling insulted. Miguel says Miles has a choice between saving one person and saving an entire world. Every world. Miles says he can do both. Spider-Man always does both. PDB says not always. Miguel says that being Spider-Man is a sacrifice, that they can't have it all. Penny, Miles' former Spider-in-Arms from Into the Spider-Verse, arrives on scene in a new suit, a new mech Gundam suit. Miles, looking around in shock, realizes that while he and Miguel have been talking, Spider-People have begun to surround them. Some notables, the cartoon spectacular Spider-Man telling Miles it's the truth, Spider-Man Unlimited, Julia Carpenter, Spider-Woman, and at least a hundred others. Miles asks if this is an intervention. He turns to PDB, betrayed and manipulated, saying that this is why the man never came to see him. He tells Gwen she was right. She should have never came to see him. PDB says, kid, look at me. Miles says, stop calling me that, growing angrier. Spidey Punk, watching with his arm folded, sees the fire in Miles' eyes, 
eggs him all. Spider-Woman tries him for not helping. He says, good. Miles says they can't ask him not to save his father. 2099 says he isn't asking, dropping a prison device at Miles' feet. The same type used to stop Gwen's father earlier in the movie. The same type all of the villains are trapped in. Miguel is telling Miles he won't be leaving to save his dad. Things happen quick here. PDB and Gwen accost Miguel, telling the man he's gone too far as Miles pounds against his prison, spinning around in circles. He locks eyes with Spider-Punk, who holds up both his hands, reminds Miles to use his whole palms. A moment before Miguel, his back turn says, Sorry you had to end like this, kid. Miles looks at his hands, places both flat against the force fill he's trapped in, lowers his head. I said not to call me that! He absorbs the energy from the force fill in one moment, shoots it out around the room in the next, stares around briefly at the spider people all thrown back from the blast, then breaks for the exit! The problem with the trolley problem. Before we get into the chase scene, I want to touch briefly on the trolley problem. So I want you to imagine, if you will. Imagine, if you will. Imagine, if you will. A tram is running down a track out of control. If it continues on its path undiverted, it will run over five people who have been tied to the tracks. You can divert it onto another track simply by pulling a lever you're standing next to. If you do this, the tram will kill somebody standing on the track you diverted the train to. One person's death to save five. That's the dilemma. What would you do? I was posed this question in philosophy 101 years ago and horrified by the responses of my classmates who almost to a person said they would flip that switch and end the unknown person's life. I mentioned the philosopher Kant a lot on this podcast, treating people as a means unto themselves. I personally think it's one of the ideas at the core of being Spider-Man. He doesn't kill or let die if he can help it. But this isn't the only philosophy in the world. And Miguel isn't your average Spider-Man. His way of thinking is much more in line with the philosophical idea of utilitarianism, which is a form of consequentialism. Consequentialism tells us to judge our actions by their consequences. Utilitarianism, put plainly, tells us the actions we make should be decided by what will be the most good for the most people. And it's not a bad philosophy. Simple math is simple math. But I have more than a few issues with the trolley problem. First, who decides the value of said lives on the tracks? If the five people destined to die there have lived lives deemed unacceptable by society and the one I can kill has been what society deems an upstanding member, are their lives more valuable than that person's then? Think about this. If it's five adults who've lived full lives versus a child on the track alone, is that child's future worth less than their past? Think about this. If the one on the track is a job creator whose life is essential to the welfare of 1,000 workers, is their life less valuable than five workers who simply punch a clock? Because I have no way of knowing, I cannot be complicit by pulling that switch. Next, who determines the most good? Who makes that decision? Who determines the most good? Because a lot of the times we have this idea in our heads that we're gonna be the person making decisions for the most good and it's just not true. That's not how society is set up. Think about this. According to many historians, slavery in the United States is one of the core reasons for the powerhouse the United States has become on the world stage today. According to Statista.com, the height of the enslaved population in the United States of America was in 1860, with nearly 4 million people in the United States held against their will. In contrast, there were nearly 27 million white Americans and nearly 80,000 people considered other. By utilitarianism standards, America's peculiar institution is justified because of the quality of life we currently have. How many people stood next to that lever and decided to, for lack of a better term, railroad my ancestor? Think about this. Not surprisingly, 
People who readily pull the lever on a faceless stranger show pause when the scenario changes to a family member or friend or someone they care about that they know being the singular person on the track. I'd rather cut off both my hands than pull a switch on my brothers, my sister, my partner, any of my friends. Thinking about that, I decided I'd have to show that same extremism for a stranger. Finally, I think flipping the switch is the easy way out. I already said I believe it makes us complicit, but I wanna go further and say how I handle the trolley problem. Refusing to pull the lever, I devote myself to dismantling the train and the tracks, because at the end of it, we can chalk it up to doing the most good in the moment, but the greatest good to me, if I get to decide that, is a world where no one ever has to make such a shitty decision in the first place. <laughs> I could be reading too much into it all anyways, all of this, way too much. But a huge part of me is glad Miles refuses not to try to do what Spider-Man is supposed to try and do, namely, save everyone. Back to the chase. Spider-Punk gives a small laugh, Miles stares at his hands, then breaks for the exit. With a shout, 2099 follows. A moment later, so does every other Spidey in the room, PDB included, who apologizes to Mayday, saying this is bad parenting as she pulls her knitted Spider-Man hat over her face. But Spider-Punk's not giving chase. He opens a portal, suggests for the record he quits, and leaves, throwing his wristwatch on the floor as he does. The sirens go off, and we got action. 2099 transmits a message to all of the spider people at all stations to stop what they're doing and stop Spider-Man, <laughs> leading to a hilarious moment that harkens back to the most famous of Spidey memes as every spider person points to the two closest next to them asking, you, 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 is it you? Gonyo, Miles Morales, he's entering sector four, giving us another hilarious moment of a Spider-Man with four mechanical arms each with a human hand on the end, walking into Sector 4, confused by everyone staring at him. Do I uh, have a weapon on my face? What's the deal? Turns out Miles is hiding on his back. The next scene we see Miles hauling ass, web swinging, running through the Spider Society headquarters with literally hundreds of spiders giving chase. Spider Cat from Earth 999 spits webbing into his face before Miles asks if the day can get any damn weirder. But it can, because racing forward, he looks to his left and spots Spider Rex, a literal Tyrannosaurus Rex Spidey from Earth 66. He bursts through the wall of a therapy session where a Spidey in a gray suit is listening to the problems of a Spidey in the classic red and blue who is reliving the trauma of Uncle Ben's death and keeps running. That Spidey on that couch, his Uncle Ben just died. It's madness. When Miles bursts through the room, right, he comes through speeding everybody. It's like a slow motion shot. It's hilarious. Dude on the couch says, I look over at my Uncle Ben. He's, he's, and the psychiatrist is like, I thought I would never get over this, but let me guess. He died? Miles keeps running, dodging a web bullet from Web Slinger. He mounts the man's horse who tells him to draw on the count of three. Miles webs the guy in the face on one, leaving the man falling and shouting, You didn't wait for three! On the back of Webslinger's horse, Miles gallops through the holding pens of the villains now, cheered on by them all who boo 2099 in company as they pass. They think Miles is one of the guys. Back in the open, he runs into a spider person in a wheelchair who says she's a huge fan of his work before asking if Miles thinks spider people too often use comedy as a crutch. She leaps from the wheelchair and starts attacking him with her crutches. 
This is Sun Spider from Earth 20023. He dodges 1960s cartoon Spidey, gets a bunch of other Spideys off his tail by sliding beneath a large pillar held up by a Spidey clearly working on his legs. He shakes a few dozen more by causing the collapse of large equipment before running smack dab into 2099. Nowhere else to go but up, he does, shutting doors beneath him as he goes before coming to a room with thousands of spiders. One says, sup, and tells Miles there's nowhere left to run. But Miles leaps out of the window, prompting the cool Spidey to add, my bad everybody, I guess there was somewhere else to run. In free fall now, 2099 follows shouting for Miles to stop running. Miles has to stop chasing him before snagging a passing flying car with a web line. Meanwhile, we see Jess Drew on her bike alongside Gwen. Gwen tells Jess that her gut is saying, but Jess cuts her off, telling her to use her head before spurting away on her motorcycle. Did you say murder cycle? I'm sorry, I'm excited. 2099 cuts Miles' web line. Jess slams into him with her cycle. A moment before Ben Riley puts Miles in a sleeper hole at 30,000 feet saying, this is a chokehold. Before Miles is dogpiled in midair. Is that a deathlock, Spidey? They crash through a vent, clearing the spiders off of our hero. And on ground level now, Miles keeps pushing, web swinging away before he's snagged by PDB out of the fracas, giving us a moment to catch our breaths. God damn! Great storytelling. PDB says he feels bad, that it's crazy to run. Miles and Counterpoint says it's the least crazy thing happening here. And he's right. The two talk a moment before Miguel tells PDB through his watch that he's got the kid's location, but Miles tries to rip up the floor beneath them. He does and dives through it, followed by a horde of spider people a moment later. Deathlock Spidey causes a massive explosion and gives Miles some breathing room. Gwen, PDB, and Jess Drew arrive on scene on Miles' tail. If there really is an elite strike force of spider people, Gwen Stacy's really on it, PDB is really on it, Jess Drew is really on it. We know because 2099 called Jess Drew in the beginning of the movie. PDB was there when Miguel broke cannon. And we already saw... 2099 himself inducted Gwen into it. So I'm not surprised that they were the ones who caught up with Miles just so people aren't like, well, how come it was them with all those spiders? They are literally the best of the best. So they arrive on scene, Gwen asking where Miles is going before PDB shouts that he doesn't think the kid planned it out. Jess tells PDB he's a terrible mentor before racing forward on her bicycle trying to take Miles out. But Miles incapacitates her, kicking her in her face, tossing her motorcycle to the side, and leaving her webbed on the side of a bus, leaving an opening for PDB to shout that he must be a decent mentor if Miles stopped her. This and I realize right now that PDB is in slippers. Miguel, back on scene, says they're both equally terrible before he and Miles go one-on-one -on -one atop cars racing beneath the futuristic city in cyberpunk style. Miguel chides Miles for not knowing where he's going. Miles says, oh, he's got a plan. He just hasn't told 2099 yet. In the ruckus, 2099 pulls Miles' day pass from his wrist as Miles boards a futuristic train. The trolley problem being symbolically ram down our throats. 2099 follows him, his claws digging into the train's metal, prompting Miles to ask if the man is sure he's Spider-Man as the chain rockets north towards the sky. Miguel asks, are you? Who do you think you are really? Miles thinks to himself that his name is Miles Morales and he's Spider-Man before releasing his spidey grip on the train and falling down towards 2099. It's a great moment because when Miles lets go, a small chunk of glass breaks beneath his feet. The kid is scared, but where the mind goes, the body follows. Right at 2099, he says he was bitten by a radioactive spider and calling Miguel a jerk, lobs a spidey bomb in a man's face saying he knows the rest. Miguel in response, 
uses a web line to toss Miles into oncoming traffic before tackling Miles. The two battle on the train once more. Miles beginning to glitch because he doesn't have the rubber band on anymore as Miguel calls Miles the original anomaly. He says Miles isn't supposed to be Spider-Man. He's a mistake. The cause of Miles' Peter Parker dying was saving him. He's not wrong, but he's not right. The cause of Peter Parker dying, the cause of Spiance dying, was putting himself between the people in the danger. What spider people do? Miguel says Spiance would have stopped the collider, Spot wouldn't exist, and none of this would have happened. Slamming Miles into the train with enough force to dent the metal around the kid. He says Miles doesn't belong here and never did. PDB and Gwen on scene begin scaling the train to get to the two. PDB shouting that this isn't what they talked about. Miles, shock on his face, looks at PDB before asking, You talked about this? A moment later, he asks if they all knew, looking at Gwen. She replies, I didn't know how to tell you. Miles, in this moment of ultimate betrayal, realizes that's why Gwen never came to see him. She shouts it's for his own good. Miles asks, who decides that? That he's not a kid. 2099 says that's exactly what he is. A kid who has no idea what he's doing. Before Miles, his hands on 2099's futuristic suit has a moment of inspiration. He says he lured hundreds of spider people away from 2099's little base before grabbing the man by his shoulders. PDB realizes that Miles did plan this out. Before Miles absorbing the electricity coursing through the man's suit, saying everybody keeps telling him how his story is supposed to go. But nah, he's gonna do his own thing. He apologizes to Miguel, tells the man he's going home, and blasts 2099 away from him, sending the man tumbling into the spider people, scaling the train. Gwen smiles as Miles rises to his feet, but Miles isn't smiling anymore. He has the courage to do what she couldn't. He says goodbye, Gwen, staring her in the face, and leaps from the ascending train a moment before shifting to invisibility. PDB says, I taught him how to do that, so I've got to be a pretty good mentor. 2099 leaps from the train in pursuit, ending the chase scene. Man. So of course the movie's not out, so I don't have anything to pull from to like watch the scene. While I was just thinking about that in my, it was just epic. It was just epic, um, and it highlights something that I think there are certain types of people in the world who, because of the circumstances that they're in, because of the life that they're living, they don't have five-year plans or ten-year plans or twenty-year plans. They don't have three-year plans. They don't have one-year plan. They don't have six-month plans. These people's plan is to get to the next moment. In my opinion, being able to plan three years, five years, ten years in the future comes from the privilege of security, knowing that the rug won't be pulled out from under your feet at any given moment. A lot of black and brown people in this country don't have the privilege of the security of that rug not being pulled out from under them. So their plan is always a rough sketch as opposed to a tapestry rich in detail. It's a rough sketch. If I can get from here to here, I'll figure it out. And for people who do have that privilege of having that rug under them secure, it can look to them like people who don't have that security, don't have focus and don't have intelligence and don't know how to navigate in the world, right? The perfect example is, is, is here. 2099 is the one in power. He thinks he has all the power. He thinks that he has Miles running scared, right? In this moment, Miles has a starting point. I have to escape and an end point. I have to save my father. So between that starting point and that end point, it's a rough sketch and I'm gonna have to figure it out. The first thing I gotta do is escape. 
He starts running. While running, he realizes, if I can get as many spider people as possible to follow me, I've got a chance. He does that, right? So now that this is happening, all these people are following him. Everything comes together on the back of that train, that trolley, whatever you want to see it as. It's a trolley to me. On the back of that trolley, when he touches Miguel's suit and he realizes this dude is wearing electricity, I've been working on something new, right? The whole plan comes together. I use their leader to take them out. I get back to that base, I'm going home. It doesn't need to be a 60 bullet pointed event. There's a start and there's an end. And I'm black in America, baby. Ingenuity is gonna be all in the middle. Don't believe me, look at jazz, look at hip hop. Don't believe me, look at a Basquiat painting. Don't believe me, read some James Baldwin. Don't believe me, read some Maya Angelou poems. And for me, quite simply, that's the black experience in America. And when people don't understand that, I wonder how well they would do if the rug was pulled out from underneath them. Back to going home. Miles has given himself some breathing room and he uses it to race back to the go home machine in 2099's base, avoiding Spider-Bite, who's still in the room with him. Invisible, he takes advantage of the designs and moves from one console to the next, activating the machine. Spider-Bite, wondering what's going on, tries to override the startup process with the AI Lila trying to help shut it down but Miles managed to successfully activate the machine. He scans his eye and the machine recognizes his dimension signature, prepping to send him home to Earth-42. He boards the transport platform a moment before 2099, bursts into the room, followed by Jessica, Gwen, PDB, the latter two shouting at Miguel to relax, and a host of spider people. But Miguel won't relax, he is enraged. He leaps towards the machine and using his claws, digs into the force field created around Miles, who finally reveals himself. And in real time, Spider-Bite is presented with a trolley problem. She stares at Miles, raises a finger to the abort button now displayed on the screen, hesitates, and does nothing. Miles gives her the smallest of smiles before pulling his mask down onto his face. 2099 gives one final scream of frustration before Miles vanishes. 2099 then rounds on Gwen, blaming her for his failure in catching Miles, and she looks to PDB for support who immediately starts a speech about being the father of a daughter and the son of a mother before Jessica tells him to shut up. Man was about to talk some patriarchal garbage gibberish. Gwen wants to talk to Miles, but 2099 isn't having it. Gwen asks Miguel if he even knows what happens if Miles breaks the cannon. 2099 asks if she wants to find out. Gwen looks to Jess for support, but the woman tells her she can't help her. Gwen, back on the side of the angels, says she's not coming. Miguel agrees and starts up the go-home machine. Gwen, struggling against the arms of the giant spider, is put onto the platform. And with a, we are supposed to be the good guys, she vanishes. Ben Riley, watching from the sidelines, says they are. Miguel, hearing this, regains his composure. He tells Ben and Jess to come with him. Tells the rest of the spiders to catch the spot. PDB begins making an excuse for not being able to join them. But Miguel doesn't want him to anyway. He says, not you. I've had exactly the right amount of you. In opening a portal, 2099, Spider-Woman and Ben Riley vanish. The three heads of Miles' universe of 1610 and Miles, his suit battle ravaged, he lands on a rooftop and takes a second to breathe and gather himself before web swinging towards home. The entire time, we get vignettes in his mask as I believe the kid is suffering through shock and the art gets trippy behind him. Giant spiders, Miguel calling him a mistake, the spot in his lenses. Before the glass of the skyscrapers he passes shows Spider-Ham, Penny, and Spidey Noir. Spider-Ham repeating the advice he gave Miles in the last movie. The hardest thing about the job, he can't save everyone. Before we see a smiling Uncle Aaron. Through Times Square, the spot's hands emerge from the billboards, reaching for Miles from every direction, telling him he's going to make the kid hurt. Then we hear 2099 telling Miles he has a choice. 
Leo's voice telling Miles that whatever he wants to do in the world, don't get lost. We get trains transformed into Octavia Octopus's tentacles. Gwen saying she didn't know before Miles breaks through a glass window, tumbling in the air. The last voice he hears is Uncle Aaron. Keep going. He web swings into oncoming traffic, gets hit by a bus, smashes into a windshield, but keeps going, landing on the platform of a large neon welcome sign. In Gwen's universe, she enters her apartment through her fire escape, and after webbing a stuffed penguin to the wall, the two have a heart-to-heart. She says her father's a good cop, that he puts on the badge because if he doesn't, someone who isn't a good cop will. She says her mask is her badge. She tries to wear it like he would, but she's constantly been doing the wrong thing. She says she doesn't know what to do, but she can't lose one more friend. The talk culminates with her father saying he quit the force halfway through her big speech. He isn't going to be captain anymore. Gwen hugs him. Says it was some speech, huh? Her dad says, yeah. No wonder she got an A in English. Gwen says B+. She missed a few classes. Harking back to Miles' moment in the guidance counselor's office with Spanish. Before Gwen heads out, her father has a gift for her. He says the guy who left it was a real piece of work and hands her a box made of magazine collage from Spider-Punk's universe. There's a sticky note inside the box that reads, in case it don't work out. And we see that Punk wasn't just vandalizing Miguel's base when he was ripping electronic parts and pieces from the wall. Big brain on Spider-Punk. He was taking the parts he needed to make his own watch, following his own advice. Walk it like he talk it. That's what he was doing. That's what he was doing. Spider-Punk. Gwen puts the watch on, activates it, and a portal opens, filling the room with Spider-Punk's signature design. She tells her dad she'll be right back, and with a promise, puts her mask down onto her face and disappears into the portal. Meanwhile, 2099 is standing in front of the neon welcome sign, and after receiving no word on a sighting of Miles from Jess and Ben Riley, orders Lila to send everyone out to look for the kid. Jess, on her bike, is tailing Jefferson. Ben Riley, as knockoff Batman as you can get, is watching Miles' house crouch on a rooftop across the street giving himself props for being in the perfect pose when a bright light flashes from a nearby alleyway. Riley goes to investigate and is quickly webbed up and subdued and sent shooting through the portal. As it closes, we see Spider-Gwen was behind the trap as she crushes Riley's watch, stranding the guy who knows where. Miles finally makes it home as Gwen approaches his apartment from across the street. Miles lies on the floor, his costume battle-ravaged, thankful he's made it, but has to hop up and throw on a coat and hoodie when Rio comes in. He hugs her, asks if everyone's all right, tells her she was right, that he met all these amazing people, but they didn't want him. He says he beat them all, and his head held high, says he knows how strong he is now, that he's strong because of his family. He says something terrible is coming for them, and tells her about the spot, his nemesis, but vows to stop him as Gwen sidles up to the edge of his window. Mal says after what he's been through, he's not afraid of anything, that he has to tell Rio something, before dropping the bombshell that he's Spider-Man to Rio's completely blank expression. Rio has no idea what Miles is talking about. She thinks the kid is dressing up for Comic-Con, a moment before Jefferson pulls up in his squad car. Rio starts asking all kinds of questions. Why doesn't Miles have eight arms? Does he push Silk out of his culito? Meanwhile, Spider-Gwen enters Miles' bedroom and stands upside down on the ceiling, staring into an empty room. She creeps forward, and we flash back to Miles, who is still trying to get Rio to understand what he's talking about before pitching forward, glitching in pain. In his room, Gwen Spider-Sense goes off, hearkening to their connection. She can feel his pain across universes because both of them realize at the same time that the kid's in the wrong universe. Remember when he activated the go-home machine? It locked onto the universe the spider was from. That universe? 42! 
Miles is in the universe the spot pulled the spider that bit him from. Great blink and you'll miss it happened moment here. As Miles comes to grips with this, the front door opens and we hear the Prowler riff. And Miles comes face to face with his Uncle Aaron. The man gives him a pound, then they hug. Miles saying he missed the man who wonders aloud why Miles took his braids out before going into the kitchen and placing a stack of money on the table for Rio. When she says she'll pay him back, the man says she won't because they're family. Back in Universe 1610, Rio explains to Jefferson that she ungrounded Miles a little, while Miles follows Uncle Aaron up the roof, glitching the whole time in Universe 42. And the rooftop in this universe is shrouded in purple and dilapidated, completely unlike the rooftop in Miles' own Universe of 1610. Miles realizes there's no Spidey here before looking up at the mural of his Uncle Aaron, but in this universe, it isn't Aaron, it's Jefferson painted on the wall. So now we know why Aaron was giving Rio money. Now we know why Aaron is telling Miles to follow him. Miles is realizing that he's followed in Aaron's footsteps. In this universe, Jefferson died. As Miles stares at the mural, Aaron gets a message on his phone before giving a side eye laced with suspicion at Miles. A moment before someone leaps from a nearby water tower and cracks Miles across the jaw, KOing the kid instantly. When he comes to, He's chained up to his Uncle Aaron's heavy bag. Aaron puts on the LP, Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City, sung by Bobby Blue Band, and spins the punching bag around slowly in time with the music. Miles explains where he's from, how Aaron died in his universe, how the man could be a good guy, before Aaron sliding his hand into the prowler claw, punches a hole in the heavy bag inches away from Miles' head. He can't believe he could be a good guy. He tells Miles that he isn't the prowler. A second later, we see the prowler, heads a foot in purple his collar resembling a crown, a pair of custom-made purple dunks with lights on the soles of his feet. He drops down from the rafters and strides forward. D. Jonah Jameson's voice in the background, tirading about a sinister six cartel blaring from the television set behind the Prowler. I hope there's a sinister six cartel in the next movie, but I digress. Aaron tosses the Prowler the claw, who catches it and puts it on. A moment before the Prowler asks Miles if it's true, if his dad is still alive. Miles says, yeah, a moment before asking who the Prowler is. Prowler's mask slides from his face, revealing a mirror image of our hero wearing two large cornrows in his hair. That's why Aaron was asking if Miles took his braids out. His braids are a part of his look. He stares down his nose saying, I'm Miles Morales, but you can call me the Prowler. Same voice, but there's a slight accent behind his words, which makes sense. Being raised by Rio now, the two probably communicate a lot more in Spanish. Great attention to detail. I love it. Spidey Mouse says if Prowler Mouse doesn't let him go, their father is going to die. Prowler Mouse corrects him, says, your father. When Spidey Mouse says Prowler has to send him home, the Prowler puts his large claw gauntlet beside Miles' face and asks a simple question. Why would I do that? Meanwhile, Gwen in Miles' jacket exits his room to speak with Rio and Jefferson after hearing Rio say that Miles is really into Gwen. She tells them Miles' actions aren't his fault, that they're hers. Jefferson accuses Gwen's father of being a drug dealer before finding out the man's a cop. Stay moved, John. With just spying from the outside, Gwen tells Rio and Jefferson that she's going to find him, that Miles loves them more than they can ever imagine. Gwen says she learned from Miles that anything is possible. Rio says if Gwen sees Miles, tell the kid he's grounded for five months and that they love him. Gwen says she'll do that before leaving through the front door. And the spot, we haven't heard from him in a while, but we see he's just touched down in 1610, floating above the city, his body now predominantly black and sketchy. 
villain of the week no more. After nearly 40 years, he's ready to move up to arch nemesis status. We follow PB next, who's sitting in Mayday's room, a book open on his chest, nodding before he's woken up by a glow outside the window. Mayday, awakened upside down on a web line, points towards the glow. When PDB approaches the window, he sees Gwen staring up at him like, you know what I'm about to do. PD straps on his baby carrier, says don't tell mom, as Mayday slides her spidey mask hat down over her eyes. She is ready. Gwen says she never found the right band to join, so she started her own with a few old friends. The old friends? Spider Bite, Spider Punk, Spider-Man India, Penny Parker, Spider-Hand, Spider-Man Noir, Mayday, and PDB. They leap from PD's rooftop through the punk made portal as Gwen stands watching them. Back on Earth 42, Prowler Miles has never met PDB, so he doesn't know the hero's first rule of being tied to a punching bag. Don't watch the mouth, watch the hands. Because Spidey Miles has just lit a pointer finger out of the gloves of his costume and has begun shocking the chains binding him. On PD's roof, Gwen asks us in her inner monologue if we want in. Damn straight! And we're out! Whew! So many great things I love about this movie. Miles going from needing to belong in this large community before realizing he needs to find the strength in his own. The trolley problem being a central theme of the movie and Spider-Bite specifically refusing to pull the lever and joining Gwen at the end, hopefully to burn down Miguel's autocratic design of the Spider-Verse. The solidarity shown between the black spider people, the camaraderie shown between the spider woman, the subtle political messages from the BLM button on Miles' bag to the Protect Trans Lives banner on the wall of Gwen's room. The Easter egg count in this movie is more than a little insane, upwards of 300 according to multiple articles. I can't gush enough about the art direction in this movie. This is the greatest animated movie I have ever seen. The only movie that comes close is the other Spider-Man animated movie. It's crazy. Every Spider's universe has its own design. Miles' current comic book, Gwen's matching her comic book's light pastel themes, Spidey India's beautiful Bollywood-inspired world, to Spider-Punk's patchwork magazine collage designs, to 2099's bright futuristic world above ground, and chaotic cyberpunk neon-filled underground. Beauty can't be understated. It just can't. You have to see it to believe it. Go see it. The music, done predominantly by Metro Boomin. He was Metro Boomin! Hit all the spots and the unique entrance music each Spidey has when they appear on scene makes their individual appearances feel special and important. My favorite moment in this film is watching Gwen, Miles, Spidey India, and Spider-Punk save everyone in the area of the collapsing Alchemex building in Mumbatsen. They saved everyone. They put themselves between the people in the danger and they saved everyone. I hope everyone listening has a chance to see this masterpiece and promise even with all the spoilers, you're going to see things I'm sure I missed. I just found out that they are playing two different versions at least of the movie in theaters. That's why some things didn't make sense to me. When I saw Ben Riley put Miles in the chokehold in the first movie, the second time I saw it, I was like, he's saying something completely different. They have at least two different versions of the movie out. I've seen them both. It's insane. Either way, check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care, and please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, come on, man, anybody could wear the mask so you know you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here. Now, can we get back to business? All right, Pete, all right? Sheesh, spotlight ham.